Welcome. Um, we're glad you guys are here. I'm glad to be here. Glad to be back um, in this pulpit. Um, I missed you guys last week. Um, I preached at two different churches. Pastor Peter was here, and I think that was good um, for all parties. Um, but again, I'm glad. This, this is like my home. I love this thing. I preached at two different churches, and one was this tiny little wooden pulpit, and the other was this glass, completely clear, see-through pulpit. Oh, and I just felt naked and exposed and uncomfortable. This is like, this doesn't this feel like the, like the top of a castle? It's like a turret, and I'm just safe and secure and lobbing grenades out, and I, I, love, I love being back here. Um, so this is, we have the best pulpit in town, um, I think. Um, so excited to be back, um, more excited to be in Judges. Um, so take out your Bibles and start turning there um, to the book of Judges. We're going to be in chapter 2. Um, for the next couple of weeks. Um, Remember, Judges is not a collection of moral examples that we are to follow. Um, That's not how we're supposed to read the Old Testament. No, God gave us this book so that we might better know and understand ourselves, and in knowing and better understanding ourselves, we may better know and understand Him. What we're about to look at in this book is is this repeated cycle, uh, about six different Times of just kind of the struggles and the failures of Israel. And those struggles and failures are are supposed to be a window into our own soul and our own struggles and failures, right? We are Israel. Uh, That's uh, that's the point. And as we're graphically and painfully confronted with the depths of our sinfulness here in this book, we're supposed to be drawn more to God and His love and mercy in spite of that sinfulness. So really quick, remember what's going on in this book, right? God's people were enslaved in Egypt. God brings them out in Exodus through Deuteronomy. He has promised to give them this land, right? This, this land is already occupied. It's occupied by some pretty terrible people as we looked at last week, right? They like to sacrifice their children to the gods on altars, right? There's all kinds of wicked things they were doing. There must be justice, right? Crimes must be paid for, right? God is using Israel to um, as kind of his instrument of justice, justice for the Canaanites. They're supposed to drive them out of the land, and it's for the protection of the Israelites so they don't have these kind of wicked people um, surrounding them. But as we saw last time, Israel failed, (laughs) To do this. Um, they left the people in the land. And this book is this, this, this repeated cycle. Remember our four words. It's rebellion. It's retribution. Repentance. Restoration. That's the whole book. Right? The people rebel against God. He gives them over to the consequences of their choices. He repays them. That's retribution. They suffer and they cry out for help. There's some sort of repentance. And then he sends a judge to rescue them and restore them. That's the cycle of the book. And this chapter is particularly important today because this is a kind of a sort of microcosm for the whole book. Right? This chapter is a summary of everything that is to come. Get this chapter, you're going to get the book. And as I said last time, the goal is to convince you how relevant this really old book is to your life. How insightful this book is to the human condition and how this is going to apply to us 3,000 years later. Because listen... You've got a problem. You entered into this place this morning with a problem. Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you'll admit it or not, deep down, when you're honest, we all know that something's just not quite right. right? Things aren't quite the way that they should be. You're not quite getting out of life what you thought you would be getting out of life. That thing that you thought was going to deliver and to give you everything you're looking for, well, you got it and it didn't quite do it. And now you're looking for something else. Right? There's, there's, there's this hunger. There's this inability for us to be satisfied. There's this problem that we all feel deep down. Well, this chapter is going to show us why we have that problem. 
Last week I preached at two different churches, one in English, boring, and I got to preach in Romanian, um, and that was really cool. Not me in Romanian, but with, with a translator, and I love doing that, except I always think the guy's just making stuff up. Like, he could be saying whatever he wants, and I have no idea, and they could just be listening, and who knows. But I, I talked in both of those sermons, I talked a lot about faith, and how we generally get faith um, wrong today. Right? Remember, we teach often in churches as faith as the kind of initiative that we take in choosing God. We initiate in faith, He responds in salvation, right? Faith is the part that we add to the salvation equation, right? I don't have time to get into detail about how um, that, mis- that is mistaken. Go back and listen to the sermon on Galatians 2, um, 15, right? We're saved only by grace. We're saved by grace alone, by grace alone. It is His work for us, and He applies it to us. He gives it to us through the gift of faith, right? Faith is not the thing that we add or that we do. It is the fruit. It is the um, kind of the evidence of regeneration. We respond to his initiating grace. But don't we really love the idea of being in control, right? We love having fate in our own hands. Remember the poem, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. We like that. We want that. So in that spirit, what I want to do this morning from this text is look this week first at our initiative. And then next week we're going to look at God's Response. I want to see what it actually looks like when we act first and when we act on our own will and on our own power. This week is going to be all about us and what we do, and that's going to set the stage to come back to this text next week to focus solely on God and what He does in response to what we do. All right, so this week's all about us, and I'm going to tell you up front that it's, it's not going to be, um, it's not going to be pretty. Um, now, again, it's kind of a long passage, but due to its nature, I think it's best that I just read it all for you up front um, this week. So listen, don't check out on me. All right, this, is, this is God's word. It's long. Some of it's going to seem a little bit strange, but listen and pay attention, and I, I promise it'll pay off at the end. Um, so, so focus with me. Um, I'm going to read it for you. Yeah, this is, this is narrative. This is a story. This, this happened. Um, let's see um, what we can learn um, from this. So Judges chapter 2, I'm going to read the whole chapter for you. Um, just follow along. Um, this is the word of the Lord. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land, and you shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochum, which means weepers. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. 
And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to the judges, for they, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. In order to test Israel by them... And whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly. And he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Let me pray for us um, as we continue. Father, um, I just pray right now that you would work in this time. Uh, give me great wisdom. Give me boldness. Um, Father, speak uh, through me. I pray that we could understand this maybe obscure and odd passage a little bit. And I pray that you would help us um, to bring this um, to our day. Help me apply this well to our situation. Father, show us our hearts. Father, show us where we are naturally inclined and what we do when you leave us um, to ourselves. Father, I pray that as we see our sinfulness, Father, that your grace and your glory oh, would just shine forth um, ever um, the greater, um, Lord. So, Father, use this time for your glory. Use it for our good. Um, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so this week, again, we, we've talked about, you know, the subject of a sentence, right? The subject is the actor. This week we're talking about when it's Israel, or when it's us, and it's I as the actor. Next week, we're going to talk about all the sentences that are God or the Lord as the actor. And this week is, is all us. Remember, before they entered the land, God had warned them about two basic things. He said, don't make any covenants with the other peoples, and do make sure and destroy the idols of the other people. And as we just read, Israel did not do either of those. Instead of destroying the idols, they preserved the idols. And this passage gives us actually one of the best illustrations in the whole Bible of idolatry and its effects. And that's what I want to talk about here this morning. I mentioned at the beginning this problem that we all have, Christian and non, well here it is. We are all idolaters. Now that sounds really strange and weird. Um, we want to explain what that means. And we'll do that by looking at what that looked like for them and then kind of applying that today to, into what it would look like for us. Listen, it's just throughout the whole chapter. Look at it. Don't take my word for it. Verse 11 sums up the problem. The people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals. 
Verse 12, they went after other gods. Verse 13, they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Verse 17, they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. Verse 19, they went after other gods bowing down to them. All right, there's us as the subjects of the sentence. It's pretty clear, right? The problem in this passage is idolatry. And notice how idolatry is defined here. It is defined as serving and bowing down. Serving and worshiping. But again, we've got to get out of the mindset, because when we hear idolatry, we pretty much exclusively think like bowing down to little, literal, physical stone statues. Right? Buddhists and Hindus, right? they have often little house shrines in their homes, right? and they have these little statues in those um, shrines. So we think, well, I'm not praying or bowing down to a statue, so I don't struggle with idolatry. Wrong. <laughs> idolatry is the most frequently discussed problem in the Bible. Idolatry is the human condition. Uh, it's the summary word in the Old Testament of our drift away from God. In the New Testament, that word is going to be desire, or as we talked about a few weeks ago, over-desire. Remember that Greek word that we discussed, epithumia. But I think that a better understanding of these gods that the Israelites were going after will help illustrate all this for us. Because again, I want you to pay attention here because their problem is your problem. This is the same problem that we struggle with. And it all boils down to this. It all boils down to desire. Baal. I don't care how you pronounce his name. It's either Baal or it's Baal. I think Baal sounds a little bit silly. And the English guy who reads my ESV on my phone says Baal. So I'm going with him. Um, Baal uh, is this God's name. The Israelites weren't sucked into this just because they liked the idea of bowing down to a statue. We're like, oh, they were weird 2,000 years ago. They just liked worshiping statues. No, not, not at all. They were very appealing reasons for them to serve Baal. Right, Baal was understood, he, he was a god in many different cultures um, kind of in that region. But ultimately for the Canaanites, Baal was the fertility god. Right? And fertility, more so than today, was just absolutely critical to life. Right? Your life depended in large part on your land's fertility and on your fertility. Right? You needed food and you needed family. And it was Baal that enabled both of those things to happen. And now, here's where it gets a little bit sketchy. Um, and let me, I'm going to explain this as best that I can um, from the pulpit. The Canaanites specifically believed that their fertility and the fertility of their land depended on the sexual relationship between Baal and his goddess, his, his consort, Asherah. Right? So they believed that their fertility depended on their God's fertility, and they believed that it was their responsibility to encourage that sexual encounter with their own sexual encounters. Right? This is a little bit strange. One commentator illustrated it like this, and this was relevant to us in the cold and uh, flu season and allergies going on. Kids, right? Runny noses. They don't know how to sniff. I don't know when they learn to sniff. It bothers me. So it's just like a constant inch of snot on a child in the winter, I think. Um, and so the goal for me is to not have them wipe it all over my couch because I really like my couch. So you're trying to teach a kid to blow their nose, right? And what do you do? You, you teach them by demonstrating for them. So you take a tissue, you blow your nose in hopes that they'll watch you do it, and then they'll do the same thing, right? Well, that's actually what the Canaanites believed um, about um, sex and how it worked with their god, Baal. 
So as you'll read through kind of some of these Old Testament books, you're going to find that sacred prostitution was just like fundamental to Canaanite worship. Right Through this, through this act, you were assisting and you were encouraging and motivating Baal to do the same thing. Right, You do it, he would do it. And thus you were then playing a role in the children and the grain and the rain falling from the sky. So are we starting to understand a little bit more why this was so appealing to the Israelites? Right, Our evangelism today often consists of come to church and listen to this guy talk at you for 45 minutes, theirs would have been, hey, just come over here to the brothel with me and we're going to worship Baal, right? But seriously, that's basically that, what their worship consisted of, right? It's not as tough of a sell. So notice what was central to the Canaanite religion, sex and prosperity. They believed that they got those things by serving and bowing down to Baal. Listen, forget Baal at this point. It wasn't about the stone statue. It was about what they were desiring and they were pursuing, pursuing pleasure and wealth. It wasn't about Baal at all. It was about what they believed that Baal could do for them. So the main point to get here is that the Israelites, right away when they come into the land, they start pursuing something other than God. They start looking at God and saying, okay, you probably can't provide for us what we want. This looks pretty good over here, so we're going to try this. Not because they had any affinity with Baal, because they liked what they could get from Baal. Right? And verse 3 is going to give us the perfect picture of the result of this. He says, God says, they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. All right? A snare is just a, a trap. Idolatry is a trap. Why? Why is that? Well, it's because idolatry can never deliver on what it promises. It's like a drug, right? Drugs prom promise pleasure and enjoyment and relief. Listen, they actually give that. They actually give some of that um, very temporarily, but they give it at great cost. They, they never provide lasting pleasure or enjoyment or relief. So the drugs end up tricking you. You get a taste of something and you're like, I like that. And so then you assume, well, if I do more of that, then I'll get that same thing. But then what it's actually doing is just sucking you in further and further, making you more and more dependent, right? Drugs trap you. Well, this is what idolatry does. And whatever it is that you're struggling with right now, this is why. Idolatry has ensnared you, right? This is your problem, and this is my problem. And just so we're all on the same page, let's clarify that and kind of bring it up to date into our time. We said the problem was idolatry in the Old Testament. It's referred to as desire over desire in the New Testament. Right? That's why we had Ricky read Romans chapter 1, because Romans 1 makes this perfectly clear. Again, Romans 1 is one of the best illustrations and explanations of the human condition, of our problem. Romans 1 says that we all know God. Right? According to Romans 1, there's no such thing as an actual atheist. Right? Everyone knows deep down um, that God is there. Everyone can recognize that um, through his creation. Everyone has this kind of innate um, feeling and sense of the divine. We have the law written on our hearts. Listen, that's why morality across the world is fairly universal, right? We all kind of, we agree murder is bad. Um, that's, that's wrong across the world because we all have that same sense within us. So it says everyone knows God, 
And it says the problem is we have rejected that knowledge. We did not acknowledge him as God. We did not honor him or thank him as God. And then verse 23 says, instead, we exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Right? That's idolatry. We've exchanged God for created things. Instead of worshiping God and being fulfilled by him, we're worshiping something else and seeking fulfillment in that thing. Idolatry. Right? Again, none of us are bowing down to cows, so that's not our concern. But look at verse 24 in Romans. It says, therefore, right, because of that idolatry, in light of that idolatry, therefore God gave them up to the lusts, to the over-desires, there's our word, to the over-desires of their hearts. Epithumia. Right? It's often desire, but it literally means that, that over-desire. So he said idolatry, so I gave them over to their over-desires. And then verse 25 says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creatures rather than the creator. That's idolatry. right? So Romans 1 is idolatry, then it's over-desire, and then it's idolatry. They're the same thing. Paul is connecting the two concepts. That's all idolatry is. It is desire. And that is our problem. We think our problem is sin, and it is, but we often don't really understand what that means. Our problem is desire. Not desire in and of itself. Desire is good. Our problem is that our desires are disordered. Our desires are disordered. We desire the wrong thing, or as we talked about a few weeks ago, we don't necessarily desire the wrong thing. We desire the right thing, but we over desire it. We desire it too much. Idolatry is always taking a good thing. Idolatry is always something good. It's taking that good thing and then elevating it and making it an ultimate thing. Or as people often say, idolatry is taking a good thing and making it a God thing. And every person in existence, every one of us in here, everyone religious and non is doing this same thing. It's all about worship. We think worship is what we do when we come to church on Sunday mornings from 11 to 12 or 12.45 if I'm speaking. Um, but no, worship is something that everyone does at all times. You cannot not worship. You are always worshiping something. And to worship just means something that you are pursuing, something that you are seeking, something that you are loving, something that you depend on and rely on. Everyone has that something that we must have. And whatever that is, you worship it. And whatever that thing that you worship is your God. It is your idol. So a good question to ask yourself, a question which we all must have an answer for, is what are you living for? Right? Why are you here? Have you ever asked you, answered that question? Why do you come to church on Sunday mornings? For most of my life, it was because my parents drugged me to church on Sunday mornings. I would have much rather slept in. Right? Why are you here? Why do you do what you do? What is the purpose of your existence? What is it that gets you up out of bed in the morning? What drives you and what motivates you? That thing is your idol and you're going to end up worshiping that thing. And whatever it is that you worship, you're going to be enslaved to that thing. Back in November, I read for you one of my favorite quotes, and I'm sure that you've all forgotten it, so I feel great liberty to read it again. Um, and it's from uh, this man, is a writer. His name is named David Foster Wallace. Not a Christian. Um, he had been declared by, most, by many to be the greatest kind of American writer of his generation. He was a genius, uh, by all accounts. Yet he was a terribly 
disturbed and depressed man. He actually took his own life, uh, and I think in 2007, um, he, he killed himself. Um, but if right before that, he, he spoke at the graduation of Kenyon College over in Ohio, and it was one of the most fascinating graduate. I think someone rated it, Time Magazine said it was like the most, one of the most significant graduation speeches kind of ever. I, ours were, mine were terrible. Um, Bill Cosby was actually the one like before us, um, so trouble um, about that. But this was one of the best graduation speeches kind of ever given. Listen to what this guy says. And this is from an atheist. This is not from a Christian. Here's what he says to, um, to these graduating college students. He says, everybody worships. Nailed it. Bam. Good. He says, the only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and stuff, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough of it. You will never feel like you have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sex, you will always feel ugly. And when, you time, when, when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Or if you worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid and you'll need even more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, and always on the verge of being found out. But the problem is, the problem with these forms of worship is that they are unconscious. They are our default settings. Listen, that's really, really profound coming from a non-Christian. Here's a man who doesn't believe in God. But he recognizes that deep down at our very core, it is our nature to be worshipers. We are always worshiping. We all have something that we center our lives upon, that we pursue, and that we let identify us. But we also recognize, he also recognizes that all the things that TV and the magazines and the world is telling you are good and that you should pursue, he recognizes that none of those things can deliver. Right? The magic magazines are telling you just pursue sex and just pursue pleasure and just pursue beauty. He's saying, listen, it's never going to deliver. Right? Our school and our upbringing is saying just get the best job, just make the most money and accumulate and live a comfortable life. And he's saying, listen, it, it can't. You'll always need more. Right? These things cannot be our God because they always lead to further <laughs> enslavement. Idols ensnare because idols cannot do what we want them to do. Right? We're all looking for pleasure and happiness and fulfillment and acceptance. Right? That's, just, that's, again, a universal condition. We all want to be happy. We all want um, pleasure. And we think that we can get it by getting really good grades, by getting a good job, by being in relationship with the right person, by having people look up to us and be impressed with us and love us. But those things will never fulfill you, and they can't ever fulfill you because you weren't ever designed to be driven by and fulfilled by those things. Our problem is that we are designed for one specific fuel, yet we try and fill our tanks with a host of other different kinds of fuels, and it leads only to ruin. So idolatry is the problem that every single one of us struggles with. We're all worshiping or pursuing something. Pleasure, sex, money, success, relationships. Uh, we all have something that we depend on to give our lives meaning. Do you know what that thing is for you? It's really important that you do. All right, so we're going to do something a little bit different this week. Take out your bulletin and turn to the back. I've never done this, so you can't be mad about it. Um, you have homework um, this week. I've never given you homework. I'm giving you homework this week, so deal with it. Um, you can do it. 
All right, there's a man named um, David Powelson. Um, he teaches at the seminary Andy's attending, actually. And Andy doesn't have him this semester. He better get him next semester because this guy is a brilliant writer and a brilliant speaker. Um, he's, kind of, he's a biblical counselor. Um, he's just excellent. He, he's got one of my favorite books. There's a book called Seeing with New Eyes. Um, and in that book, he's got a chapter in which he lists 35 questions. I didn't give you 35. I gave you 15. He has 35, he calls them x-ray questions. They are basically diagnostic questions to kind of help you zero in on and identify your idols. And I took and picked and I went through and picked a couple of my favorites and printed them out for you. And this is something I want you to take your bulletin home. I want you to sit down with the Bible tonight, late, or in the morning, sometime this week. And I want you to honestly kind of walk through some of these questions and answer them. Don't answer Jesus. Don't make that your answer to the question. No one's checking your answers. I'm not going to see it. Nobody's going to see it. Honestly, answer these questions for yourself. Let me walk you through them just so you kind of get an idea um, what they're after. These are all basically the exact same question, all formulated in a bunch of different ways. It's trying to get at you know, whatever that, that thing is that you cling to. Number one says, what do you think that you need? What are your felt needs? Right? What is that thing that you're like, oh, I gotta have, I need that thing. If I have that thing, life will matter. Number two, what are your plans, agendas, strategies, and intentions designed to accomplish? What are you, what are you aiming at? What, what, what's your goal? Where are you headed? Number three, what makes you tick? What sun does your planet revolve around? What do you organize your life around? Four, where do you find refuge, safety, comfort, escape, pleasure, and security? Number five, what or whom do you trust? Number six, whose performance matters? On whose shoulders does the well-being of your world rest? Who can make it better, make it work, make it safe, make it successful? If this person would just do this, I would have this. If I could just have that person, then I would be all right. Number seven, whom must you please? That's a really good one. Is it a boss? Is it a, a co-worker? Is it, I, I still have this Ed complex, the pastor that I used to work for. I'm like, when he shows up while I'm preaching, I like freeze up because like, I've got to impress Ed. I've got to be good for Ed, right? There's one of my, my there's one of the things that I, I struggle with, right? Well, whose opinion of you counts? From whom do you desire approval and fear rejection? Whose value system do you measure yourself against? In whose eyes are you living? Whose love and approval do you need? Number eight, here's a really simple one. What do you pray for? Well, what do you find yourself most constantly praying for? That's going to give you kind of a hint of what may be your idol. Number nine, what do you think about most often? What preoccupies or obsesses you in the morning? Or to what does your mind drift instinctively? Or if you're like me and your mind does nothing in the morning, at night, what does your mind um, drift to instinctively? This is a good question. What do you most naturally think about? When left to yourself and nothing else is attracting you, what do you go to? What do you think about? Um, number 10, what do you talk about? What is important to you? What attitudes do you communicate? Number 11, how do you spend your time? There's a great, add money to that. Put, put a slash and put money. How do you spend your time and your money? Those are one of the greatest indicators of what your idol may be. Well, what are your priorities? Number 12, what are your characteristic fantasies, either pleasurable or fearful, daydreams? What do your night dreams revolve around? Number 13, what would bring you the greatest pleasure, happiness, and delight? What would bring you the greatest pain or misery? 14, how do you implicitly say, if only, or like, if only I had this, then this, right? To get what you want, avoid what you want, keep what you have. Where do you find your identity, and how do you define who you are?
Let me give you an example. Let me walk you through. This is something I've been thinking about uh, a lot. Because um, uh, idolatry is there, and it's so deceitful. And we don't even know it's there half the time. So this is something I've been thinking through um, uh, a lot. Um, let me walk you through one. Number 12. Uh, number 12 is one of my um, favorite um, questions. Uh, I told a number of you uh, at Bible study, that was a couple weeks ago, maybe, maybe a month or so ago, that was a couple months ago, um, that I was struggling because a classmate of mine, who was exactly my age, um, we went to seminary together, he had just recently written and published a book. Oh, oh, I can't describe to you this, when I first saw this, my, my thought. Listen, I was sure I was smarter than this guy in class, right? I got better grades, I wrote better papers, I uh, preached better sermons, um, and all respects. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm better than this guy. He's great at playing music, but I'm smarter, and I've at least got that, right? But then he publishes a book, and it actually, like, it was actually a difficult thing for me. Uh, and again, this is, we're kind of laughing and it's fun, but notice I'm, I'm being completely serious. And part of the problem that I had with this was because of my answer to number 12, right? A, a recurring dream, I've had it in dreams, daydreams, fantasies, a, a recurring one that I've had often has been, it's me publishing some brilliant book that's just universally acclaimed by Christians and non-alike. Everyone's coming to Jesus, and everyone's like, oh, you're so great, and you're so smart, and millions of copies sell, so I make millions of dollars, all to the glory of God, of course, because um, it's a Christian book. Um, but think about it, right? This, this daydream, this dream, this desire that I have, it reveals two of, I think, probably my main idols. It, it reveals, first of all, my need and my craving and my desire to be recognized as intelligent, right? I crave approval. I, when I fail to find my identity in God, then I can tend to find it in you guys or in other people saying, oh man, oh, good, good sermon. That was so smart. I never saw that. I'm like, oh yeah. To God be the glory. Uh, right. But then I'm thinking, yeah, okay, good. You're right. Thank you. Right. So here's one of my idols. I struggle with, with intelligence and wanting to be recognized as intelligent. And the desire for the book to be wildly successful reveals that contrary to my constant ripping on the prosperity gospel, it has infiltrated and influenced my thinking. I want my life to be easy. Right? I treasure and I value comfort and entertainment. I want to have my two hours at night to watch Sports Center and to hang out with Melissa and just to watch something and to do nothing. I don't want to walk in from a long day of work and have two screaming kids. I just want to watch the game, right? Let me watch the game, right? Because I value comfort. I don't want trials and difficulties and disruptions, right? So this one question just, I never once thought about things that I think, thought, or dreamed about, but this one question makes you say, oh, Wait a second, that might show me here are some areas that I struggle and here are some areas that I cling to to provide for me something that God should be providing for me. So these are acting as functional gods for me because I'm looking to them to fulfill me and to give me joy and meaning. By the way, my classmate wrote the book back in November. I bought it four days ago. <laughs> Took me that long to get over myself and buy it. And it's, I read 100 pages of it immediately and it's brilliant and it's God-honoring, and I'm a better person for having read it. But I, I wrestle, I still wrestle with that jealousy. I can never write something like this, right? And that, that still bothers me. But God is giving me grace to get over it, to get over myself, and recognize the great gifts that he's given to so many people. Right? But listen, that's just an example of how to honestly kind of walk through these questions yourself, or do it with a spouse, or do it with a friend, and say, you know, here are some, here are some of my idols. Because, listen, you cannot 
fight this battle if you don't first know what you are fighting. You can't succeed here if you don't know um, the idols of your heart. So, so sit down with us at some point this week, and it'll be really important for next week um, that you have sat down and done that, because next week is going to depend a lot on having done this work. As we've looked at ourselves and our own hearts, uh, it's going to better prepare us to then be ready to look at God and His response to our sinfulness and what He has done um, for us. So come knowing what you're depending on, what you're living for that's not God, what, what motivates you and gives your life meaning. And again, you've got to know this also because whatever that thing is, according to this chapter, that thing is enslaving you. Why? Why is that? Why is that over-desire of good things so crippling and unfulfilling? Think about it. Think about something so petty as a friend writing a book. Right? I had actual like anger and disappointment for three months because this, this, I was holding on to this idol. Right? It's so silly and ridiculous. But it was enslaving me. It was affecting me. Why is that? Why is this over-desire so crippling and unfulfilling? And it's because of who you are. Right, listen, contrary to all the science books and contrary to Dawkins and whatever anyone says, you are not just a random collection of molecules. And you know you're not. Well, we know there's something more to us than that. Right? You're not just an animal like all the others just further along kind of the evolutionary chain. No, you are a person designed and created in the image of God. So you are, in many important ways, like God. And in being like him, you are meant to be fulfilled only by him. So you know you get the story in Genesis 2 of Adam and he's alone and there's all the animals and none of them are complimentary or fulfilling to him because he needs someone like him. He needs Eve to fulfill him. Well, in the sense that we are like God, created in his image, then we need God to fulfill us and to complement us. Nothing else will do. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that, that God has placed, he has put eternity into your heart. And that's why temporary things can never satisfy you. Because you were meant for so much more. Listen, I'm going to quote Joel Osteen here. You were meant for greatness. You were meant for glory. Not in the greatness and the glory that he's talking about. Not money and doing well business-wise. No, so much bigger and so much greater than that. You were meant and designed and created to be in relationship with the creator God of the universe. That's crazy. That's ridiculous, right? You are created for this greatness and this glory, thus there is not a, even a close to enough of that here in this world to satisfy you, right? And don't you feel that, right? Don't you have, I have it. It's, you're insatiable, aren't you? Right? You want something. You're desperate for it. And then you get it, and then you just want something else, right? Uh, once I graduate college, I'm good, and I've got it. Oh, no, I need this master's. Once I've got this master's, I'm good, and I've got it. Oh, I've got to get this PhD, um, and then I'll have everything that I was looking for, right? You do it with things to collect. You do it with money. You always need just a little bit more. You just need the next million, right? Go talk to millionaires, and they'll tell you, like, oh, I just need, I just need a few more million, and then I'll be good, right? These things will never satisfy you because you have this insatiable appetite. You were created by God. You were created like God, and he created you with this insatiable appetite for goodness and glory. Thus, the insatiable can only be fulfilled by the inexhaustible, right? And nothing else can do it. Nothing else can give you what you need because you are created for so much more. Augustine's famous quote is, you have made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless 
until they find their rest in you. You've probably heard the famous quote attributed to Blaise Pascal, a great philosopher. He says, you know, there's a God-shaped hole in our hearts. Have you heard that one? He didn't say it. He never said that. Um, But what he said was actually much better. Here's what he said. He says, what else does this craving, this, this desire proclaim, but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is but a a trace or a vapor. This we try to fill in vain um, with everything around us, seeking in things that are not there the help that we cannot find in those that are, though none of them can help. Since the infinite abyss, there's the God-shaped hole, since the infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite object. Right, and that object is God himself. C.S. Lewis famously said, right, you know, he was talking about these desires that he has. And he says, if I find in myself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, well, then it gives me pretty clear evidence that I was designed and created for another world. That I was designed and created to be filled by something else. And that's by God himself. You see, again, most preaching just often consists of a preacher up here telling you to do something or stop something or change something without telling you why. But again, we've talked about how this this doesn't work. This would be like a preacher going to a rich guy and telling him to burn down his luxurious mansion because it's the right thing to do. No way. He's never going to do it, right? You haven't given him a reason to do it. But if you tell him to burn it down because there is waiting for him a far bigger and a far more luxurious mansion, well, he'll grab a match and torch it all immediately because you've given him a reason. You've offered him something better. You see, we are always driven by our desires. We always do what we want. We always do what we desire. So our only hope for any sort of change is to begin to desire something else. Are you never going to stop that thing? Are you never going to Idols just don't go away. Idols are only displaced. Right? So if you want an idol to no longer affect you, you've got to displace it with something better. Right? You're always going to do what you want to do. The goal is to then change that Desire. The goal is to get a bigger and more glorious and grand picture of Jesus Christ so that we begin to desire Him more than we begin than we desire these other stupid little things that grab for our attention. We've got to change our desires. And the only way those desires are changed are by constantly submitting ourselves to the Word and looking at Christ, looking at Christ, praying and begging for a bigger and grander vision of who he is. That's what we try to do with these sermons. We're trying to offer you something better. Christ is better. You've tried everything else. I've tried everything else, and it doesn't work. You're always left with that feeling, right? More, something more. That was too quick. That wasn't enough. What's next? It never works, but he does, and he will, because he is what you were created for. He is the only thing big and glorious enough to satiate your insatiable hunger. Listen, maybe you're having a great um, time living your life how you want. Listen, I believe you. I I was there. You you like spending your money how you want to spend it. You like using your time how you want to use it. You like pursuing what you want to pursue. You may be perfectly happy and content right now and not even see a need for anything else. Right? I, I was there in college, and I believe you. But the thing that I also know, um, that I have also experienced, is that a crash is coming. I, I don't know what it is, and I don't know when it is, but I do know that without fail, something is coming. It may be some sort of loss. It may be some sort of failure that kind of knocks your idol down and you realize it's not enough. 
or even worse, it may be you getting exactly what you had hoped to get and getting exactly what you had worked so hard and pursued for so long. Because then what happens? You're like, oh, this isn't it. I I need something else. This wasn't it. So that thing that you worked so hard and strived to give your life meaning, and you got it, and it didn't do it for you, and now you are devastated. You're left with nothing, because what you thought was God and what you thought would deliver has let you down. God is offering you something better. Idolatry and the things that you're trying to replace God with are such cheap substitutes. And they're such dangerous substitutes. Right? It's like being stranded at sea in the middle of the Caribbean dying of thirst. Right? It's such an irony. Right? You're surrounded by just beautiful, clear, and pristine water. And that water is almost exactly what you need. It would provide some temporary refreshment. It would be cooling, right? But, but what happens if you indulge and drink that water? It kills you. It kills you. All, all that extra salt gets in there, and when the salt outside of the cells is higher than the salt in, it sucks all the water out to balance it, and then you have all this salt in your body. That salt is poisonous, so your kidneys go into overdrive kind to get rid of that salt. To do that, they suck all of the water out of your body, and you shrivel and you die. Why? Because you indulged in something that looked really good, and that was almost exactly what you needed. But it wasn't. It was actually the exact opposite. And it was actually death. That's what idolatry is. It looks really good. And it looks almost like the real thing. And it will temporarily provide for you what you're looking for. But it will only lead to um, enslavement and to death. But God is better. God is the cold, clear glass of fresh water that gives you exactly what you need because it's exactly what you were created for. Why? Why is he so much better? Listen, this was supposed to be the first half of the sermon. That's why we're coming back next week to this same passage, right? We're going to look at it again. We've seen us. We've seen the idolatry. We've seen what we do when we're the actors and we're the subjects. Next week, we're going to see what happens when he's the actor and he's the subject. And it's going to be the perfect lead-in to Easter because Judges chapter 2 and God's response is this beautiful picture and foreshadowing and explanation of what happens on the cross. So we're going to prepare for Easter the week before from Judges chapter 2 as we see what God does in response to our idolatry and in response to our sin. And you're going to see then why he is so much better. Because though you pursued other gods, he pursued you. Though you rejected him, he accepted you. Though you were a sinner, he provided his holy and perfect son to pay for that sin so that you could be reconciled to him. That's why he is better. Because he loves us and pursues us and saves us, not because we're beautiful or attractive, but because of the exact opposite. Because we're not and because we're helpless. Um, Because we have no other hope. But he then still comes in and provides for us exactly what we need. And that is Jesus Christ. And we're going to see him beautifully foreshadowed um, next week in the rest of um, Judges chapter 2. Let me close to um, reading for you um, a quote um, from John Piper. And then I'll pray. I love this. The, the panorama of God's perfections is the end of our soul's quest for eternal satisfaction. He is infinite. 
and that answers to our longing for completeness. He is eternal, and that answers our longing for permanence. He is unchangeable, and that answers our longing for stability and security. There is none like God. Nothing can compare with Him. Money, sex, power, popularity, nothing can compare with God. Let's close um, with a word of prayer. Father, we confess um, that our eyes um, wander, that our hearts um, wander, um, Father, and we are very prone um, to pursue other things. Father, this, this world is very um, appealing, um, Lord. Uh, there's many things that it has um, to offer, often many, many good things, um, Lord. But Father, I pray that you would forgive us and have patience with us, uh, patience with us, Lord, as we um, sometimes struggle uh, to keep our eyes on you. Father, I pray that though our eyes were completely off of you, Father, though we had rejected and run from you, Father, I'm very thankful that you ran um, right after us. Father, that you came and got us, you grabbed us, you rescued us. You didn't sit around waiting for us to figure it out. Father, you came and got us, um, Lord, and that is um, our only hope. So, Father, I pray that as we work through this book and as we continue to study your word, we would better understand the gospel and understand grace and what you have done for us so that you would begin to, to reorder and properly order and change our desires. Father, so that as we begin to desire Christ more, we'll be, begin to desire these idols uh, that uh, hold our hearts captive. We begin to desire them um, less. Father, I pray that our Jesus would be big um, to us, Father, that we would see him as, as beautiful and as glorious and as desirable, um, Lord, and we would desire to seek him um, above these other things that we um, are so prone to seek. So, Father, help us do that. We cannot do it ourselves. Father, we need um, your help. We need your spirit to convince us of the value of Christ, um, Lord, of his infinitely superior value um, to everything else, um, Lord. So, Father, I just ask for you to do that in my heart, and I ask for you to do that in the heart of everyone in here. Father, show us Christ. Um, show us um, the only solution to that insatiable hunger that we have, um, Father, is Jesus. And I pray that the people um, would know that, um, Lord. So, Father, we thank you for this time. Uh, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word, Father. It is, it is so deep and rich and filling, and it is active and it is living, Father. And I act, ask it to do its work um, right now. And pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.